My name is Charlie Hall, in for Justin McElroy. You're listening to a special Game of the Year episode of Polygon's Quality Control. So I want to thank you guys all for joining me today on, on, a, on a special episode of Quality Control, one of two or three that we're going to be putting up to talk about this year's Games of the Year. So I've got Simone de Rochefort with me today. I've got Matt Leone, Russ Frushtick, and Michael McWhorter. Thank you all for joining me. Sure. So Polygon has been kind of drip feeding our Games of the Year onto the website. But real quick, I want to talk about how exactly we, we all selected the games of the year. Now, Michael, you actually did a lot of kind of the legwork for this. How did how did Polygon vote on games of the year this year? Well, we followed the model that we've uh, used for the past couple of years, which is that we allow the whole staff to vote. Basically, everybody who's on editorial and video and social media gets to chime in. Um, so that's about, what, 26 people, I think. Uh, and what we do is we uh, each submit our own top 10 games of the year in a ranked order from 1 to 10. Uh, and those games are scored uh, in reverse order uh, with the number one game on your list getting 10 points, uh, number two game on your list getting nine points, etc. Uh, and then we tally all those votes. Um, and uh, we come up with the, with the top 10 list um, based on those scores. And uh, that's pretty much it. It's pretty simple. Um, I think we're still kind of futzing with the formula a little bit um but yeah it, it, that's that's how it goes uh and uh you know just to clear up any confusion um just because a game scores a particular way in a review on polygon doesn't necessarily qualify it or disqualify it for our top 10 games of the year list uh so if we gave a game a seven officially as part of our review uh, that doesn't mean that it uh, shouldn't be on our list because we scored something a 9.5 and it didn't make our collective top 10 games of the year. Um, yeah, so that's that. Any any questions about how that process works? Not really. I, I know it's it's been something that I've been... It's been fun to do the last... Uh, well, I think this is my fourth year doing it because uh, right about this time of the year, there's just this flurry of games coming in to my Steam collection mm -hmm. and to the to my mailbox occasionally as we kind of call in some of these games that we haven't played. So I know that I've spent the last couple of weeks just playing a ton of games that I had missed throughout the year. It's it's always a lot of work to get through all of these. I try and play as many as I can, and I know you guys too. There's a little bit of lobbying that goes on on the back end as well. We trade some emails back and forth and chat about things in Slack. Uh, but number 10 this year, number 10 on the list was a game called The Last Guardian. And uh, Matt, you actually wrote up that game. And why did it kind of rise above the pack, do you think, to become one of Polygon's games of the year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was kind of almost people had it in mind as one before it came out. Because like a lot of people, it came out and they pointed out all the flaws and they, they were still very critical of certain parts of it. But I think just the concept alone kind of pushed it towards that pack, uh, which is is rare. And I think a big part of it is that game, uh, you get a, I guess, okay, so Last Guardian is basically the third in a, in a series, I guess you'd call, of uh, of games. And I think 
games in that series uh, have this reputation where they're kind of viewed in a different way than a lot of other series. And I think back when the first two came out, that was kind of unique. And these days, I think that kind of, uh, I don't know, that kind of, that kind of tone, that kind of uh, approach is, is more common, especially from a lot of indies. But I think it's still pretty unique as far as, I don't know if you'd call it a triple-A game, but a, but a bigger budget game than your, your indies go. Uh, and to, so to get that kind of, I don't know, tone and uh, approach from a, a bigger budget thing, uh, I think automatically puts it in a certain category for certain people. So um, that's not to diminish the quality of the game. I think it's a great game. Uh, but I think it already kind of has a head start just because it's trying to do something in a kind of more expensive way than a lot of other games do. Um, but but I mean the game itself is great too. I mean I, I think the the art, especially the uh, the animation, just the way that Trico works, the way this big uh, monster kind of interacts in like these small spaces is really really impressive. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna add something real quick about uh, the Last Guardian and, and how some of these votes went down. Um, so like I said earlier, we you know we we rank our top ten games. Uh, and The Last Guardian was not anyone's number one choice um, for Game of the Year, but it was a lot of people's number two, three, four. Uh, it was it was on their list, and that's, you know, I don't know if that's a product of the game coming out late in the year and being fresh in people's minds, um, or whether that's a better testament to the fact that so many people actually did get through it and play it quickly because they wanted to spend more time with that game. But I've heard a lot of um, people really say that, that that they, you know, overcame some of the technical shortcomings of that game to, to really um, fall in love with it. Uh, but I know that there were also some very vocal opponents of that game actually appearing on our, our top 10 list because some people really, really disliked it. Yeah, I, I saw a lot of comments about, like, the frame rate and the, the controls and things like that. And I honestly, I didn't really feel any of that when I was playing like you notice it you notice like oh it's, it's slightly delayed here or yeah it slows down in this in this scene or whatever but like to me that was not a detriment at all that was just kind of like oh you know it's just a little weird but the whole game's a little weird so it kind of fits with it in some ways I don't know uh it, it really didn't feel like yeah it took away from the whole another game that's was a little controversial I think uh in in its commercial reception uh, was our number nine choice. While widely critically acclaimed, Titanfall 2, uh, a lot of folks are, are beginning to think that it didn't sell well enough or, or as well as EA might have hoped. Michael, you uh, were responsible for writing up our Game of the Year post on that. Tell us, tell us a little bit about Titanfall 2. Uh, well, Titanfall 2 is, uh, is kind of a strange game. Um, you know, in my write-up, I, I kind of... Uh, compared it to uh, some older Half-Life games. Well, Half-Life 2 uh, and the, the two episodes specifically. Uh, because I think that Titanfall 2 is very is structured very differently from the kind of shooter campaign that we get these days, which are generally these kind of like narrative-driven, very polished, uh, like focused on, I think, big narrative set pieces and... Um, <clears throat> Whereas the design of Titanfall 2, uh, you know, and this may be just kind of like a big, you know, marketing bullet point for them, but Respawn talked about how they went into that game to, trying to figure out how to design a single player campaign around uh, the Titanfall 
gameplay mechanics and universe. And as people who played the first Titanfall know, there really wasn't much of a single-player campaign in that game. It was it was all kind of tied into multiplayer in, in some ways. Um, but for Titanfall 2, they, they wanted to make a very discreet, structured, single-player campaign with a narrative, um, you know, you know, untethered from the multiplayer component. Uh, and I, I think they were really successful. And, and what they did was they talked about how they tried to make action blocks. Um, so they basically took some of the design concepts of, of Titanfall, and then they tried to apply them to, you know, gameplay um, mechanics and moments and dis you know, discrete levels. And they came up with all these little things that they thought that they could do in a Titanfall game. Um, and that, uh, as people who have played the game probably know, that includes things like uh, 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 time travel. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, But also moments where you're uh, in your Titan, moments where you're outside of your Titan uh, solo, moments where you're, you're working together alongside your Titan to, to fight things. There are boss battles. Um, and, you know, it's all very much like a... It's all structured like an like an older game, uh, in, in my opinion, um, and, and they do some fun, weird, interesting things um, with all the mechanics. And there were a, a lot of moments where I was like, "Well, I'm really having fun with this this item or this weapon or this tool," and then they just take it away from you, uh, and that's that's not very common uh, in in modern games. Like you you get something and you keep it and you level it up and you there's RPG style progression for things and there's really none of that in Titanfall 2 single player uh, campaign. Like you you do earn new weapons and uh, and new Titan loadouts, uh, but it's 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 very uh, old school in some ways in how it approaches designing levels and, and chapters of a game. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. Uh, and um, while Jack Cooper, who's kind of the main character in the game, is a, you know kind of a blank slate, and you can you can kind of speak for him in some ways with some dialogue choices. The real star of the game is is uh, the the Titan that you're allied with, BT seven two seven four, who's just this really well written, dryly funny character that you kind of bounce things off of, and you know. There's a bunch of narrative exposition that happens between the two of them, and I just feel like it's it's a really well structured, well written, fun game, um, and it didn't it didn't really seem to blow away the staff of Polygon in a lot of ways. You know, I think our review of it was um, above average. Uh, you know, I think we gave it a seven, which people think is a bad score, but it's it's not. It's a good score. Um, but it didn't really resonate with Arthur, uh, who reviewed it as much as I think it did with other people on staff, because 11 people put it on their... 11 people out of the 26 who responded put uh, it on their top 10 lists. Uh, nobody put it at number one, but it was a, a lot at number four, six, seven, eight. Um, so it, it kind of won there just... It kind of made it to the list just based on the number of people who were really interested in the game. Um, so, and, and like I said in my write-up too, it's also got a pretty good multiplayer <laughs> that I really haven't spent much time with because uh, I really just liked the single-player side of it so much. I but. put a lot of time into that multiplayer. I don't know if anybody else on the call did, but I, I it it worries me a little bit. Anecdotally, I've heard that those servers aren't as full as, as they might be. I don't know if that's because it's fragmented between several platforms or the game didn't uh, do as well at retail as it as some of its competitors. Have you heard anything about its its commercial success? I mean, you know, from 
from all indicators from the retail side, just considering how quickly and how heavily this game has been marked down, you would think that um, nobody's playing it. Uh, we don't have great stats on that, unfortunately. Um, so I don't really know how successful it's been. It, 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 it certainly seems like it was not the, the sales win that EA and Respawn hoped it would be. But, you know, they put it out right before Battlefield 1, uh, which a lot of people were really excited about. And I think response to the multiplayer beta was pretty tepid. Like, I was not a huge fan of it. Um, so, you know, I think that maybe this was a misstep uh, in terms of release schedule and um, a couple other things. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's doing very well. Uh, but I would highly encourage people to go pick it up, especially since you can get it for 30 bucks. And I think that the, the single-player campaign is worth it uh, worth that buy-in alone, and then I think that there's a, there's some pretty fun things that they do on the multiplayer side, but it's just I've been playing other things, specifically Overwatch all year. <laughs> so <laughs> I think uh, that goes for all of us. Yeah, I mean, I think Titanfall Two is 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 one of those games that's kind of um, you know suffering from the way that people play games now, which is that they latch onto a specific game and they play it for a long, long time, and they're probably not willing to personally invest in learning or built, you know, joining a community uh, of another game. Like I play Overwatch pretty much every day. Um, and I, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm invested. I'm, I'm not going to go invest over in Titanfall 2. Uh, and I think that that's just, um, that's just kind of the, the, the nature of this business right now. I mentioned uh, lobbying earlier, and I, w I wouldn't say that folks lobbied real heavily for our number eight game of the year, but uh, there were a couple of notes in Slack and, and emails that went out reminding people of the existence of Stardew Valley. And this was not one that I actually had a chance to, to lay hands on this year. Simone, you wrote up our impressions in our, our game of the year post for Stardew Valley. Why was this game such a big hit this year? Oh my gosh. So... First of all, this is not the kind of game that I expected to like, even though by all indications I should have known because it came out back in February, I believe, and everyone who was into this sort of farming sim style quiet like life game got really into it and got really hooked and I heard about this and I heard about this and I was like okay fine whatever Stardew Valley like the art style is not my thing the gameplay is probably not my thing and then it finally came out on um, PS4 and Xbox One and I picked it up because I, I by that point I had heard so much about it that I was like okay I'm gonna do I'm gonna commit I'm gonna make my farm whatever I'll try it out Russ and I both got so hooked on this and it's just this combination it's this perfect storm of factors where the gameplay itself is just so every beat of it is satisfying the system of going to bed and then waking up and finding out how successful you were the day before like in your sales or in your planting whatever like you get a bunch of money from what you did the day before and then you go about your current day and you're doing things like talking to people or mining or farming or buying new stuff and planting new crops and you always have you're always juggling all these plates of like okay well this day I want to do this and then tomorrow because I did that I'll be able to do this other thing and it just becomes this system where you literally can't escape 
escape because you're like, okay, well, one more day of this. It's a short, it's, it's not, the days aren't that long. So surely I can play one more day. I'll just find out what happened. Oh, I really want to see like if I get a letter or if my, maybe today my, my fucking blueberries will come in and I'll make a thousand dollars and then I can buy that chicken coop I wanted. It's, it, it like sucks you in in this way. And all these little things that you're doing, despite the fact that there are so many things that you can do, they're all very satisfying. Like gathering resources is satisfying in its own way. Farming is satisfying. Mining is satisfying. And then, of course, you're gathering resources and you can turn that back into money because you're selling them or you can turn that into gifts for the villagers that you're building relationships with. And here's a surprising thing. Like part of the reason that I wanted to get this game was because I like doing romance in video games I like making fictional characters kiss and you can get married and stuff and I was like oh yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna get myself shacked up with a virtual husband it's gonna be great uh have not have barely scratched the surface of the relationships because I have spent my entire time obsessively farming and arranging my farm aesthetically and like being very picky about where I put things like trees Um, And, of course, every time that I see a picture of someone who has a nicer farm than me, I become furiously angry. And that's just five more hours that I have to sink into the game right there. So I I think I would say even if you think that this isn't the kind of game you would like because you don't necessarily play this genre, I would try it because just in terms of the crafting of the game itself – it is a trap. <laughs> you will never get away from it. Uh, one complaint that I think I have heard people have trouble getting into it just because it kind of it does a reverse Harvest Moon thing where there are almost no tutorials. Uh, and for me, I, I I had I knew about that going in, so I kind of was ready with resources. And we have a video on our YouTube channel of. Um, Griffin McElroy teaching his brother Justin how to play the game because Justin also had that same problem where he couldn't get into it um, because it's just it, there's a lot to do and it's kind of dense at first um, but I know Ashley also had trouble getting into it so I would just recommend you know being ready to look things up or doing a little reading on it beforehand but um, other than that the game I think is is just impeccable yeah uh, I, it's, it's perfect I did want to just say one thing um of because obviously I've played quite a bit of this as well, and Simone and I trade tips over Slack. Russ is my um, guru. I'm her guru, her farming guru. Uh, the one thing I want to say is, of all of the games in our top ten list, this game was made by the fewest amount of people, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say, one person uh, designed the game, did the art, did the soundtrack, did everything on this game. I think it took him four years or something like that. And it all just came from, and it's his first game. It came from him wanting to learn how to program, but also he was such a huge fan of early Harvest Moon games and felt like there hadn't really been a great one in many years and was like, you know what? I'm going to learn how to make a game and I'll, I'll make this. And it ended up being, in my opinion, I think it's a better game, obviously, certainly than any recent Harvest Moon game, but I think it's better than Animal Crossing, which is a game made by hundreds of people at a very talented company and a game that I love. But I think the pure nature of the game that he's made is just, it is levels of genius that 
few people are capable of, let alone one person. Um, you can like feel the the love in it. Like I remember there was a day in the spring season when I came out of my house and it was the first day that the the cherry blossoms were, you know, blowing through my farm. And it was this like beautiful moment because that hadn't happened before and it was suddenly this beautiful day and there were flower blossoms raining down around my character and you just you feel this warmth and this love and then this anger because you can't stop playing. But it's it's an experience that like you said it, it's very pure. Hey, Simone, can I ask you um, uh, some questions about Stardew Valley? Absolutely. Uh, so when you talk about, like, checking in uh, on, like, your crops or your whatever your daily rewards are, is that, like, a in-game day, or do you actually wind up... It is an in-game day. Okay. So I, I, I think, Russ, would you say the days are, like, half an hour or 40 minutes or something? Less than that. I think Less it's that. probably, like, 20, 15 or 20 minutes. Oh, okay. Oh, All right. Jeez, that makes it even more disturbing how much time I've... <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you, you do your daily activities, and as you're, you know, going about your day, you can sell things, like put them in this box out for delivery, and then um, the game... It's night, you go to bed, the game saves, and then as you wake up, you're, you find out basically what your sales were from the day before, and you can sell, like, crops, you can sell, like, crap that you find on the ground, like fibers, which I hate. Um, just anything <laughs> yeah the the pro tip to avoid addiction in this game because i've certainly suffered from it is if you save and go to sleep do not leave your house the next morning because the second you step outside and you see oh i need to harvest these crops or oh i need to cut these trees down you're lost for another full day because you're like oh, i don't want to lose all that progress but it's hard so, not to step out of because if you don't oh, touch anything hard. you can just step out of the house and just look and not touch anything no and then quit. that's i'm in for another day <laughs> you can't I, I believe I can't, in you i can't wow <laughs> wow okay we clearly need a new spin-off podcast that is just all started valley chat i've decided russ is we'll... very good with the tips i would love to do that <laughs> <laughs> The the last game we're going to talk about today was number seven on our list of games of the year for 2016, and that is Dishonored 2. And Russ, you had the chance to write that up for our game of the year post. What made Dishonored 2 so successful? Yeah, so just I love Dishonored 1. Uh, it was, I think, my number one pick when it came out. I think it was two years ago or three years ago. And um, I've always been a huge fan of that genre, the stealth action genre, games like Thief, uh, Deus Ex, stuff like that. And um, I tried to remain very dark about this game insofar as like not watching trailers and stuff like that, just because I knew how much I loved the first one. I was definitely going to play the second one. And when I went in, I was pretty astonished by the level of consistently amazing things this game pulls off. Um, I think art design-wise, it is without a doubt one of the most impressive games ever made. Um, environmentally, the way the the world they they've crafted is so acutely designed. I think it's on the level of a game like Bioshock in terms of creating this very believable, very well rounded world that you are inhabiting. Um, I think um, I mentioned this specifically in my write up. There are two levels in this game, um, which I don't want to spoil for people. I will say the names of them. So one of them is called the Clockwork Mansion, which if you've seen trailers, you might have seen. The other one is called uh, A Crack in the Slab, and it comes late in the game. And both of those levels are, like, monumentally ambitious, especially Crack in the Slab is, like, insane, like one of the most ambitious levels I've ever seen. And you just got the impression that 
they felt very confident in the base game that they had designed in the original Dishonored. And with that confidence, they basically pushed all of their creative juices into other areas of the game that they could better refine, whether that was the art design, level design, um, combat. Uh, They added a bunch of um, lethal and non-lethal options, ways to play the game in interesting ways. Um, It's... um, I've played through... I'm in, I'm in my third playthrough of the game, which is something I never do in games. Uh, I played through it non-lethally. I played through it lethally. And I'm playing through it now um, without powers. And each time I play, I'm having a different experience, and the story is slightly different based on the choices I'm making. And um, I'm just... It's staggering. I have so much fun just, like, abusing the incredibly overpowered nature of some of these powers, which they kind of want you to do. They want you to feel like an untouchable beast making your way through these levels. And um, it's... I I think it just hits on every single level. Um, Yeah. You've recently done a stream uh, on our Facebook page of your playthrough without any powers, which I thought was really interesting. I need to go back and, and view that and see what the game looks like from that perspective, but also Bethesda did something interesting. They they released kind of a new game plus mode, I think, since our review went up, and that allows you to blend the powers of the two protagonists together uh, and, and use powers that one might not necessarily have access to. So have you had a chance to play with that since, uh, since yeah. your review went up? Actually, I went, um, my second playthrough of the game was in new game plus, so I was able to play as Emily, but with Corvo and Emily powers, and it pretty much breaks the game insofar as, again, you are so untouchable. You could jack up the difficulty if it's too easy for you. I kind of enjoyed the fact that I was just, like, sprinting through these levels, stopping time, possessing one guy, summoning rats, using my <laughs> slingshot to, like, drag someone over a cliff. You're like, just describing my commute to work. <laughs> you just have... That sounds exciting. Um, you, just have, you just have so many tools at your disposal um and it's really cool to see that they are supporting this game post release um i know that update in particular was free it was you know didn't require a season pass or anything like that um and i also know that they uh the dlc in dishonored one was excellent um there was this whole side story with dowd um and it kind of seems like that's going to happen again for this game so i'm very eager to see what they do post release well, we've got four games we talked about today, either sequels or spiritual successors uh, from other titles. In our next episode, which is coming up next week, we're actually going to talk about at least three brand new franchises that made our top 10 list. And I hope that you all will join me then. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, for coming on the podcast, and I'll talk to you all soon. And thanks to you at home for listening today. We'll be back next week with part two of our Game of the Year discussion. In the meantime, we've got a lot of big stories on Polygon.com, a surprising number of them for this time of the year, in fact. Did you know that players in the spacefaring game Elite Dangerous made contact with an alien species two years after the game was launched? It's bonkers. We've got all the details, as well as our staff picks for the most anticipated games of 2017. Until next week, this is Charlie Hall. Thank you for listening to Polygon's Quality Control. 